Pulse Audio Podcast Network. When we think of Indigenous women in North America, we think of Pocahontas, Sacagawea, and well, those are usually the only ones. Even what we know about those two women is steeped in mythos and Disney fairy dust. But there are so many Indigenous women who didn't make it into our mainstream consciousness that deserve to be recognized. In honor of Indigenous Peoples Month and Native American Heritage Day, which is on November 27th, we're covering Indigenous women. Yay! Yay! So welcome to a very special episode of Whining About History, where two longtime besties talk about women from history you probably didn't hear of, especially in this case. Mm. I'm Emily. I'm Kelly. And thank you so much for joining us. We're going to drink some wine and we're going to talk about some women and we're going to get crazy. Yeah, that sounds Maybe. Standard. We're already like a bottle in. So it's really anyone's guess. This episode could go in one of two directions. <laughs> it's going to go both. One of us yes. is going to do really well and the other one's just going to crash and burn. I feel so I had to do that intro three times. I feel like I'm primed to crash and burn here. This is my moment. Okay. This is my breakdown. <laughs> this is it. I got it. Yes. I've been preparing for this breakdown since the moment I clawed myself out of the womb. <laughs> <laughs> violent yeah we definitely know who's losing their shit this episode all right well uh we do have a say their name for this very special episode all right our say their name this week is artemis kane amazing name by the way artemis is one of my favorite artemis names i love you (laughs) um and they sent us a list of several native american slash indigenous women for us to cover and they said they're going to be sending us more particularly women of color suggestions so we're looking forward for hearing more from you artemis and we appreciate you sending us amazing women to cover seriously if you guys have recommendations we are always open to hear them please email us at whiningaboutherstory at gmail.com do it also i want to say artemis is like one of my favorite characters on It's Always Sunny in Philadelphia. And I'm having a really hard time separating our Artemis from that Artemis because I know nothing about our Artemis other than that. They are lovely and delightful. Yep. So I'm definitely imagining Artemis from It's Always Sunny in Philadelphia is like, get it. <laughs> okay. All right. Well, yeah, seriously, Artemis, thank you so much for inspiring this episode and the women we're covering today, because I don't think I would have found this woman had you not given me her name. Same. same. Like one of the women on your list we've ever, we've already covered. And that was uh, Goyen. Yep. Yep. And one of them was already on my list, but I chose to wait on her. But yeah, so both of these women are thanks to you, Artemis. You did this. I mean, we might as well just have her do the rest of this episode. Come on in, Artemis. No, I'm kidding. She's not here. That would be really funny. That would be hilarious. I would have shocked me. I would have been like, what? (laughs) And here tonight. To surprise Kelly. So on that note. We are pairing uh, this very special episode with some very special wine. Yeah, we're drinking Apothic Crush. We've drank other Apothics before, but I don't believe we've drank this one. We 100% have not. The crush on the label is like slightly raised. That's why I keep touching it. Oh, I was like, you are groping that bottle. Something Um, fierce. So it says, the first taste entices, stimulating the senses. The next taste ignites, arousing the passion. 
a decadent red blend that combines red fruit flavors with notes of caramel and velvety smooth mouthfeel. Red flute flavors. Love it. Here, wait. I want to grow up the bottle now. Yeah, just if you feel it says crush on the front, it's like slightly red. Oh, yeah. Because it looks like it's like the um, A. uh, It looks like it's like a velvet bedsheet like and so it's like where the bedsheet would be like creased that like they kind of made it raised yeah also a pop at crush is definitely my new like edgelord username for everything (laughs) i don't know it sounds like it makes my little high school goth heart so happy it definitely has that velvety mouth feel sorry i took a sip before we well uh cheers to indigenous people's month and native american heritage day and artemis we love you that was an excellent clink. It's a very smooth Ooh, red. It is. I, I actually, I have that initial bite and then it mellows out really quickly. But like just lifting the glass to my face. has that velvet the aroma feel. is I really. 100% agree with the last line. <laughs> yeah. This makes me want to curl up in some like sexy red silk bed sheets and just like go to town. <laughs> All right. Well, uh, I believe I'm going first today. I think I go first. You are okay. I am so confused. No, we're both confused because the episode that will have been between the episode we actually just recorded, which was the episode for Veterans Day, and the episode we're recording now has an episode we recorded last week in the middle. So we're really confused. This timey wimey stuff is bullshit. I already don't know what day or time it is. In 2020, I posted our Wine Wednesday on Thursday, not because I forgot, because I legit thought it was Wednesday. (laughs) Like, nothing makes sense. That's one of the reasons I had to do the intro three times, because Kelly and I, like, we counted down, and then she just stared at me, and I'm staring at her, and she points at me, and I'm like, no, no. (laughs) There's a hair in my wine. I mean, I'm 90% sure it's my hair, but... Is that what the hair of the dog is? <laughs> little no, hair of the dog, the that bitch cure. Ah. What is the hair of the I dog? I think it's the whole... When you, like, when you're hungover and you drink alcohol to, like, cure your hangover. Because oh. it's the hair of the dog that bit you. Like... Where does the dog come in? Like, I don't how know. How do we associate dogs with I don't alcohol? know. That's... Here, I'll Google it, because I actually don't know. But that's my assumption. Mother Google has all the answers. Yeah, so hair of the dog, short for hair of the dog that bit you, is a colloquial expression in the English language predominantly used to refer to alcohol that is consumed with the aim of lessening the effects of a hangover. Oh Woo! my god! <laughs> Kelly took a random guess and got it right. Kelly is on top of it. I'm just going to say, we are not right very often and we wildly speculate frequently, so this is a truly momentous moment. I'm going to take a swig to that before I begin my story as Kelly plucks no, the hair of the dog out of her wine. It's my turn to go first. Damn it. You're, we just <laughs> talked about this. Fuck Emily. Do you ever just like talk to yourself like, Jesus Christ, Emily, yeah, get your shit together. If anything, this will just be the restarting point. Yes. I have to do that like Princess Carolyn's psych up speech from BoJack Horseman. Like, you need to get your shit together. <laughs> All right. So I am covering Mar- Maria Tallchief. Amazing name, first yeah, of all. Right? Um, Very so descriptive. She, yeah. She was born Elizabeth Marie Tallchief. Two words. Later changed to Maria Tallchief. One word. I love she went from Marie to Maria. Yeah. It, it comes into... You'll see. Okay, there's a thing. Yep. 
So, yeah, her birth name was Elizabeth Marie Tallchief, and she was born in Fairfax, Oklahoma, January 24th, 1925. So we're going back. Going back a decent way. She was born to Alexander Joseph Tallchief, who was a member of the Osage Nation, and his wife, Ruth, who was Scottish and Irish. Love it. And he stood as surprising five foot flat. No, I'm that kidding. Funny. <laughs> it's like the most ironic surname. Right. So she was known growing up as Betty Marie to her f- friends and family. Like that's what she went by growing up. That's so cute. So I'll call her Betty for now. So Betty's paternal great grandfather, Peter Bigheart, had helped negotiate for the Osage concerning oil revenues that enriched the Osage nation. So her father grew up rich as a result, never working a day in his life. In her autobiography, she explains, quote, As a young girl growing up on the Osage Reservation in Fairfax, Oklahoma, I felt my father owned the town. He had property everywhere. The local movie theater on Main Street and the pool hall opposite of it belonged to him. Our 10-room, a terracotta brick house, stood high on the hill overlooking the reservation. End quote. 10 rooms? So they were doing good. I don't even know what I would do with 10 rooms. Like, and I, that was my thing. I'm like, when she says 10 room, does she mean like 10 bedrooms or does she just mean 10 rooms? Hold on. I want to count this out. Okay. So you got the master bedroom, the kids room, the office, the guest bed. That's four rooms. And those are just bedrooms. Mm-hmm. Um, if we want to get to rooms in general, maybe two bathrooms, living room, kitchen, we're up to eight. Family room. Family room, nine. And basement den kind of thing that would be the family room so laundry ish i don't know much bigger than my home (laughs) about the size of my home probably if they're talking non-ten bedroom one hand the family did spend their summers in colorado springs to escape the oklahoma heat however life was far from perfect her father was a binge drinker and her parents often fought about money oh why is it the people with the most money always fight about it? Right. Like, I'm listening to that um, Women of Means book still. Yeah. Which will make sense by the time this episode comes out, because I covered one of the women from that book in the last episode, which was actually recorded a week ago, which is like two weeks. Time means nothing, but it blows my mind what people are quibbling oh, yeah. over in this fucking book, where it's like, well, he only gave me $160,000 a month allowance. I'm like... Bitch, I will cut you myself. <laughs> right. So the other reason they probably had a 10-room house is she had five siblings. Oh. Three, okay. Three from her father's first marriage, which was to a German immigrant. Um, so the three from that marriage were Alexander, Francis, and Thomas. Okay. So those are the first three. And then she also had two siblings by her mother, um, which was Gerald, who was unfortunately injured in a childhood accident when he was kicked in the head by a horse and was never really the same. And then she had a sister. So it was four boys. And then she had a sister, Marjorie, who was uh, Betty's best friend. All right. Well, 10 rooms seems a little less opulent. We got to six children. Six fucking kids. (laughs) Okay. Um, So as a child, Ruth, so her mother... Had dreamed of becoming a performer, but her family could not afford it. Um, so she was determined that her daughters would not suffer the same fate. You know, whether her kids wanted it or not. So Betty Marie was enrolled in summer ballet classes in Colorado Springs starting at the age of three. I love how you frame this as she didn't want her children to suffer out on the same misdreams when it's more of her mother was living her misdreams out through her children. Um, She and other members performed at rodeos and other local events. 
Betty Marie studied, also studied piano and contemplated becoming a concert pianist. Oh, that's cool. In 1930, a ballet teacher from Tulsa, Mrs. Sabin, uh, visited Fairfax, where they lived, looking for students and took Betty Marie and her sister Marjorie on as students. Um, looking back on the years spent with Sabin, Maria wrote, quote, she was a wretched instructor who never taught us the basics. And it's a miracle I wasn't permanently harmed. Oh, my God. So in addition to the problems in Mrs. Sabin's teaching techniques, she would put Maria on point shortly after she joined the school, which was only at five years old. That's way too young to be on point all the time. What, what, what is on point? Where you're up on your toes. Oh. Like ballet dancers oh. on point. Why did I think we were still talking about the piano? No, we're talking about ballet. I'm like, is that where you just I'm pretty sure I mentioned ballet, didn't I? I? Maybe I didn't. All right. Yeah, well, ballet teacher. I have also been drinking. Um, yeah. So that's she was horrifying. Only, she was only five at the time. That's horrifying. And doing it that young can result in serious injuries. Yeah. And like permanent damage because you're still growing. Yeah. At age five. So later that same year, Betty Marie was enrolled in the Sacred Heart Catholic School and she was beyond her classmates in her reading ability. So the teachers actually allowed her to skip two grade levels. So she's not only like dancing and doing piano she's also super intelligent she's another she's a fellow catholic school survivor right um so between all of these extracurriculars and school she had little time for free work but when she did find some she would love the outdoors in her autobiography she reminisces about the time spent wandering around our big front yard and rambling around the grounds of our summer cottage hunting for arrowheads in the grass Oh, that sounds like such a, I don't know, sweet upbringing. Like I, like I didn't have any indigenous friends growing up, but I remember kids being like, I found an arrowhead or that kind of thing. And like, yeah, I was always like, I still look for rocks in the ground when I'm hiking. Like there is no way I'm looking, I'm going to find an arrowhead where I hike, but I still always like, I don't know, that rock looks kind of suspicious. That rock is sus. That rock is (laughs) sus, man. So in 1933, her family moved to Los Angeles with the intent of getting their children into Hollywood musicals. Yay. I mean, if you're having your kids do point ballet right, at you five, might as well. you might as well um, go for something to use it with. So the day they arrived in Los Angeles, her mother asked a clerk at their local drugstore if he knew any good ballet teachers. Because, you know, that's just that's the person you ask. The fucking checkout guy at Walgreens. Do you know any good right. ballet instructors? The Tell me he did. Yeah, he did, actually. What the The, fuck? The clerk recommended Ernest Belcher, who was the father of another dancer named Marge Champion. Quote, an anonymous man in an unfamiliar town decided our fate with those few words. That's what Maria later recalls. First of all, Herstory headcanon, he is 100% related to the Belchers from Bob's Burgers. 10,000. Also, Marjorie Champion? What a name. Marge Marge Champion. Champion. That's a name. (laughs) Probably not a real name. Dude, she picked out a great name. It's easy to run with the name you've been given, but to pick out a truly great name is hard. Exactly. Um, So once in Los Angeles, um, she was put in the grade with her prop, you know, because obviously like when you start a new school, they kind of just put you where you should be and then move you around as necessary. Yeah. Um, so she was put in her proper grade and then put into an opportunity class for advanced learners. She, she later recalled opportunity class or not. I was still way ahead with nothing to do. I often wandered around the schoolyard by myself. 
So basically, she was like, I was bored. At this point, thankfully, she was removed from point, which probably saved her from major injury and just kind of introduced to like standard ballet. Okay. So because she was so bored at school and didn't really have anything else to do, she fully devoted herself to dancing. Um, In addition to ballet, which she had previously been doing all wrong. So she was basically starting over because, you know, she was always on on point. So she's basically starting over learning ballet from the beginning again. Didn't she mention that the person didn't even teach them the basics? They're like, get on your fucking toes and dance. So she's basically learning, relearning ballet. But she also learned tap, Spanish dancing, and aerobatics. She found tumbling and aerobatics very, very difficult, and she eventually quit the class, but it would actually later help her with her dancing skills later in life. Um, the family then moved again to Beverly Hills this time, where the schools offered better academics. So basically, they were kind of looking for a challenge for Betty Murray. You know, they were like, you're bored. You're clearly not putting yourself into school. Like, let's get you somewhere that'll challenge you. It's super funny. So I really struggled with school growing up, particularly with math. And I remember this one time my mom floated the idea, well, maybe you're just bored. Like maybe it's too advanced or you're or you're too advanced or something like that. Because cause I wasn't I wasn't stupid. You know, I was a smart kid, but I remember her saying that and laughing because I was like, you have to be fucking kidding me because I don't even get See, this shit. It that was, a, was me in math class. It though. was a I was learning disability that she meant. <laughs> but that was me. I was that kid in math, like particularly math class that I actually had a teacher once get mad at me because I would do all my homework in class. Like while they were teaching and she'd get really mad at me and like and they once accused me of cheating. And I'm like, no, I just fucking understand what you're talking about. Did I ever tell you the only reason I passed eighth grade algebra was because the teacher kind of took pity on me, but he was talking. Okay, so first of all, this teacher didn't really teach. He just went off on wild tangents, which would be great if he didn't grade us on our shit. (laughs) But one day he was talking about megalodon which if you don't know is like a supersized ancient version of a great white shark so this thing was the massive. video game i'm playing <laughs> i love it um and he kept calling it megalodon and i was like i raised my hand i was like i think you I mean, almost, mean I almost megalodon my wine <laughs> but i was like i think you mean megalodon because we know how to say mega and it's just Ladon. Ladon. And so I literally got a d in the class because he gave me extra credit for correcting him so it was partially petty, partially because I was more interested in, like, Megalodon. ancient dead things than I was math. So at this new school, when they moved to Beverly Hills, Betty Marie would go on to experience what she would describe as very painful discrimination. Oh, no. And it, this, is, this is when she took on spelling her last name as one word, probably because I bet me people made fun of her. She was still doing dance. She was still studying piano. And she would actually all throughout high school go on to perform with small symphonies as a guest soloist. Like, she was that good at piano. That's wild. At the age of 12, 12, that's it. We're, we're at the age of 12. Um, Betty Marie began performing with, there's a lot of Russian, it's ballet, <laughs> uh, Bronislava Nijinska, who is a renowned choreographer who had recently opened a dance studio in Los Angeles, basically, you know, and she was like, okay, I'm going to go to this dance studio. I'm going to go hang out. I'm going to smoke outside. No, I'm kidding. Right. <laughs> um, also working at the studio was someone named David Lit- Lichney, 
who was a choreographer and also a former dancer. So like there's these two like big name dancers that opened the studio. Betty felt that Bronislava was a personification of what ballet was all about. So like she was in love with this person. Oh, so so not like was, actually love. He was the epitome of ballet though. Like she I she'd assume, been doing this basically all her life I and this was it like was a woman. Oh. You assumed it was a man. I assumed it was a woman. I never looked. Oh shit. Our internal it's a misogyny woman. is showing through, and by our, I mean mine. She was Polish, actually. Oh my god! I'm my grandmother is turning over in her grave and flipping me the bird, and so, and call and calling me yeah. a bitch, and then I'm telling her I'm not a bitch, and then she's like, I didn't say you were a bitch. I said you were acting like a bitch because she literally said that to me. I love your grandma. Yeah, I love her too. Uh, she said, quote, I looked at her and I knew this is what I wanted to do. Bronislava imparted a strong sense of discipline and the belief that being a ballerina was a full-time task. Quote, we didn't concentrate only for an hour and and a half a day. It was, we lived it. So that, that, like, that's, that was a quote from Maria, like saying that's the philosophy that she was imparted yeah with, th- this isn't this an after school activity this is your life right and it was at this time under Bronislava that she decided that ballet was what she wanted to devote her life to she was like wow. this is it this is what I want I love that that became her passion especially after her kind of negative right? experience and she was only 15 the beginning. she had more figured out by the time she was 15 than I do at 29 so right? good on her <laughs> Soon after beginning working with um, Branislava, she, Branislava, decided to stage three ballets in the Hollywood Bowl. Uh, Maria expected to get the lead role because she was already working with her, but instead got put in the corda ballet, which is like the ensemble. It's the ensemble of singing. Yeah. Yeah. Like it's when you go to a ballet and it's not the like main person, it's just like one of the other people. That's what she was. Yeah. So she said, quote, I was hurt and humiliated. I couldn't understand what was happening. Didn't she love me anymore? Oh no! So you know, she's. I think she was. I think it was very much like I'm your student, and you're not like yeah, putting like, me first. But it's I'm like, your student. I'm good. Like I thought I was good enough. Exactly. So it took a pep talk from her mom, which aw, yay mom, aw, yay ma'ams, for Maria to kind of redirect herself and like put herself back to work and be like, okay, like. Clearly, I need to work on something. So she worked her way and eventually did get a lead part in Chopin Concerto. And when the big day came, she actually ended up slipping during the rehearsal and was kind of concerned that she would get replaced by a different dancer. Yeah. But Bronislava dismissed it and said, quote, happens to everybody. Aww. So she was like, no, nah, you know, it happens. It's fine. I bet Bronislava was like, I'm going to stick her in the back to motivate her. Yeah, exactly. And she's going to come back like a fucking phoenix. <laughs> um, so Betty Marie, still going by Betty Marie at this time, um, graduated from Beverly Hills High School in 1942. At this point, she had given up um, piano, but did want to go to college. However, her father was very against it. Quote, this is a quote from her father. I've paid for your lessons all your life. Now it's time for you to get a job. I mean, (laughs) this is is coming from a guy that never worked a day in his life. Yeah. Like what? To give the money to you? Exactly. I mean, it was fine. She was dancing. Um, She won a big part in a, in a, I almost called it a play, but it's not a play in a show called Presenting Lily Mars, which was an MGM musical starring Judy Garland, which later inspired Veronica Mars. It was a very different show, but (laughs) Uh, dancing in this movie was not 
like Maria didn't like it. She she didn't find it gratifying. She was like, this isn't what I want to do. So she she decided against making like mo- dancing in movies a career. She's like, no, that's not it. You know, that's I'm not feeling it. I'm not vibing with exactly. this scene. <laughs> Shortly after that, a family friend named Tatiana Ria Bushkavaska. That is the last name. Bushkavaska. Yeah, that's probably not right, though. But she asked Betty Marie if she wanted to go to New York, like, as for a trip. So, Tati- like, for funsies? Like, kind of, Tatiana was just, yeah, basically. Okay. So, Tatiana, as a chaperone, took uh, Betty Marie, who was 17 at the time, to New York. Because why not? Can I get Tatiana in my right, life? Right, exactly. Not that we can go anywhere right now, but geez. So one of the first things uh, Benny Marie did when she got to New York was look up Serge Denham, who was a major like ballet producer at the time. A secretary at his company told her that the co- the ballet company wasn't in need of dancers, and you know she left very disappointed and sad. However, a few days later, she was contacted and told that there was a place for her in the company after all. It came up later that they didn't necessarily remember her specifically, but they had she had something they needed, a passport. During this time, many, many ballet dancers were Russian and Russian immigrants, which meant they didn't have a passport. Oh, wait, what? Because they were going to do a show in Canada. So they were immigrants to America and they were here on like visas and stuff but they didn't have passports to go to to Canada Canada. okay okay I'm like wait I feel like you need a passport to come I feel like the United States is pretty no you need a visa you don't need a passport okay Um, so basically they were like okay you know you're good enough and you can go to Canada and come back. This is everyone's reminder. Renew your passport. It's yep. only good for 10 years. I need to renew mine. I need to get very new one, yeah. soon. So she was taken in as an apprentice. You know, she wasn't even a full-time dancer. Yeah. Her first performance was the Got Paraceline, and I'm pretty sure I pronounced that wrong. And then, you know, she went on the Canadian tour with this troupe. After the Canadian tour, uh, she got really lucky, and one of the dancers happened to leave because she was pregnant, and so Betty Marie got her place, and was offered $40 a week in a salary. I didn't look up what that was in today's money. I thought you were going to say she got lucky and another dancer, like, broke her ankle no, or something. That would be you terrible. Know, at least, you know, she's having a baby. She's going to be a mom, and she's exactly, totally like, happy yeah. about that. Uh, I, I understand that this is, like, a very physical uh, endeavor, and it requires uh, you to be have a certain shape and a certain weight and all that stuff. And, like, even living kind of the, oh, yeah, the no, nine-to-five life that we are. Being a ballerina was very And hard. being pregnant is difficult uh, to be a ballerina and pregnant. So that, that actually makes you, don't you get, feel a Basically, you don't get to be a ballerina anymore. Yeah, which is, I don't know, it... it, it to be a ballerina requires a very strict lifestyle, and that's a bummer, but I also understand that's part of the yeah, deal. It is. I, I, and I, I mean, know. I feel like it's, as a ballerina, it's something you're aware of when you make the decision to have children. It's kind of also like in any professional sport. Exactly. You know, if you have there, kids, you're probably very not going strict back to parameters uh, for performance exactly. and training and all that stuff. So I'm really in no place to judge. Exactly. I'm just glad some poor girl didn't break her ankle and had her dreams dashed. That's funny. <laughs> so on her first day as a full member of this company, she actually found out that her old friend Branislava ah! um, was in town to stage the Chopin Concerto with another ballet company named Ballet Russe de Monte Carlo. Is that C-H-O-P-I-N? What? The, the Chopin? 
Yeah, I think it's Chopin. 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 Chop in. That's how it's spelled. I know, Chopin. but I, I think it's Chopin. I thought it was Chopin. Whatever. Email us and tell us which one. I've of had us enough. I've had enough it. wine that I don't. Email care. us and let us know which one of us pr- is pronouncing it slightly less wrong. Yeah, because there you I'm go. convinced we were both fucking it. But I always thought it was like Chopin. That's concerto. how I've heard it, but I'm like, it should be Chopin. So it's, it's Chopin. like it's like Rodin is Rodan, where it's like, guys, fucking phonetics, please. Right. The English languages know better. I will be the first to say it. Yeah. No. So Betty Marie kind of got a break. Not fully, but a little bit. When Bronislava cast her as the first ballerina, cast her as the understudy for the first ballerina, Nathalie, Nathalie, not Natalie. It is a T-H. Nathalie. Are you sure she didn't pronounce it Natalie? Because Uh, I see people cramming in all kinds of letters into names that are not pronounced. Back then, I'm going with (laughs) Nathalie. You know, Um, if you're going to spell it T-H, we're going to say it. Um... So, Natalie Krasovska. 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 That's a cool so name. So, she, so, Betty Marie was acting as an understudy as the, for the lead role, basically. Okay. There was an underlying issue, however, at this Ballet Russe de Monte Carlo in that these Russian ballet dancers quite often had problems with the Amer- American ballerinas. Because they were viewed as inferior. American ballerinas were viewed as inferior oh, ballerinas. Okay. Um, so when uh, Betty Marie was promoted, uh, she became a very primary target of their animosity and kind of like, well, why are you the understudy? And, you know, like, it yeah, became. You're a taking thing. the place of a qualified Russian ballerina, you bitch. Exactly. So at the same time that that's going on, the company is also preparing to stage the Agnes de Mills Rodeo or the ca- the Courting of Burnt Ranch, which I much <laughs> prefer that title. I'm sorry, the what? The Courting of Burnt Ranch or the Courting at Burnt Ranch. Oh, okay. I like, love Burnt Ranch. I want to court that Burnt Ranch. We going to get down. Which was a very early example of American ballet. Like it wasn't a Russian ballet, which most were or a European ballet. It was an, an American ballet. I'm not surprised because all these others are these like beautiful French names. And there's the Courtin at Burnt Ranch. <laughs> well, I just want to say, so it was called the Agnes de Mille's Rodeo or the cor- the Courting at Burnt Ranch. Agnes de Mille is the person who wrote okay. the ballet. Still, so, it's a rodeo or a burnt ranch. Like, <laughs> Yeah, no, exactly. So during their preparing for both of these shows, uh, Agnes approached... Betty Marie and suggested that she change her name. It was very, very common in those days for American and European ballet dancers to change their name to sound more Russian. Very, very common. Okay. That um, that actually makes perfect sense to me because we see this whole changing your name to appear more or less this, that, and the exactly. other thing. And- all throughout history. Exactly. And if to Russians be less are the German, end all to be all. less Jewish, to be more American. Yeah, yeah all and if, that and shit. And if Russians are the end all be all of ballet, of course you're going to change your name. You want to exactly. come off as Russian. However, this was a very, very sensitive subject for Betty Maria. You know, like she was, she was very, very proud of her Native American heritage. And it had been previously suggested by one of her previous coaches that she change her name to a more Russian sounding name, such as Tal Shiva instead of Tall Chief. Tall Shiva. 
Um, Shiva Kamini Soma Kandaka. Exactly. Have you ever seen the lead? I have. Oh my god, um, the Shiva blast. She once again refused, however, saying Tall Chief was my name and I was proud of it. However, Agnes had a more acceptable idea that she would use a modified version of her middle name. So Betty Marie, or as she was born, uh, Elizabeth Marie, became Maria. You're right. It did come back. It did. Well, and she's already modified her last name due to bullying and racism, you know, but at least she maintained how it sounds and generally how it looks other than just removing the space. Exactly. So it's like, God, I have to do this shit again? Yep. So she, and and that's what she would be known as the rest of her life was Maria. Maria Talchi. we're, We're switching from Betty Marie to Maria. So if you're Googling her, Maria Tallchief. Yep. Um, so within two months at the Ballet Russe de Monte Carlo, she had been a part of seven different ballets, all as in the corps de ballet. So she was all in the background. However, while they were touring, when they stopped in New York, she took a few classes at the School of American Ballet. And even though there were no like official classes while they were actually touring, what she would do was study her more experienced colleagues. She would study these Russian ballet dancers and these other American and European ballet dancers that she was dancing with and kind of use that as her, like, studying. Right. In particular, she admired a dancer named Alexandra Danilova for her work ethic and professionalism. And she was like, okay, I'm going to, like, kind of use her as my role model. Also, during her first year at the Ballet Russe de Monte Carlo, she met and dated a man named Alexander, also known as Sasha. I love that Sasha is a male name in Russia. Yeah. So Alexander Sasha Gudovich, um, who was like the darling of the company, he was also Mm -hmm. a part of the ballet company. Everyone loved him, but they started dating. And Maria would go on to call, say that this was... For both of us, it was the love of our, it, it was our first love. We saw each other every day and I was convinced it was true love. Oh, when she say, says yeah. she was convinced, that makes me sad. Um, <laughs> Sasha would moonlight for extra money and actually went on to buy Maria an engagement ring. However, in the spring of 1944, he had a sudden, sudden change of heart when someone else began to pursue him. Sasha, you bitch! He, <laughs> he absolutely broke Maria's heart. Oh, very, no. Very, very sad. However, uh, okay. I just want to say, if he bought her an engagement ring, if it was going that far, and then before they got married, that he was like, trash. oh, someone else is like interested in me. I'm going to go over here. Honey, he did you yeah, a favor. No. He's trash. trash. Walk away. So luckily, she had another tour to kind of distract her. And even more luckily, while she was on tour, Maria got to see her parents in Los Angeles. Aww. However, seeing her, because she appeared to them at least quite frail as she had lost a lot of weight, which was kind of due to poor nutrition and stress. I mean, it is very stressful being a ballerina. Yeah, it's very intense. Um, but they got to see her in a minor role in The Snow Maiden. And, but afterward, when you know she was kind of like hanging out with her family, her mother did try to persuade her to quit ball- ballet and return to piano and was like, you know, you'd ha- you'd, it would be more steady. You wouldn't have to like keep with a certain appearance you know however uh her mother would go on to change her mind once she read an article about her daughter that was written by america's top dance critic like praising her for her role wow even though it was a minor role yeah and and then her mom was like okay you know what clearly you're good at this you love it 
okay, I'm this fine with fine. it. You know, her second year with the Ballet de Russo would go significantly better and she would start getting, you know, she was more established within the dance company. So she started getting bigger roles. She got to perform as a soloist and she got the lead in a few of them. You know, she was doing a it's, lot It's kind of like she she had paid her dues and she was reaping the benefits of that. And she and not and not to dismiss the fact that she was putting a lot of work into it by studying her fellow dancers. Exactly. Like she was always trying to get better. Mm-hmm. So later that same year in 1944, well-known choreographer Georges Blanchine was hired by the Ballet de Ru- the Ballet Russe de Monte Carlo. That's a, I'm just going to call it the Ballet Russe because we don't you need mean, de Monte you Carlo. You mean Belarusi? Yeah, right. As my four-year-old from preschool That's called cute. it? <laughs> no, Ballet Russe. Okay. Russe. So he was hired to work on a new production called The Song of Norway. Yay. Yay, Norway. Yay, Norway. Maria was drawn to him from the start. Describing one of her first experiences with him, she says, quote, when I saw what he had done, I was astonished. Everything seemed so simple yet perfect. An elegant ballet fell into place before my eyes. At first, she wasn't sure if he was paying much attention to her, but she quickly found out that he was. Uh, Georgia signed Maria a solo in the Song of Norway and on the night before the premiere also informed her that she would be Danilova's understudy, which Danilova, I think, was the prima ballerina at the time. Yeah. Or not Russia's prima ballerina, not the United States. Prima ballerina means you're the top shit. Uh, There is one above it, but it's really only used in like Italy. Oh, I can't remember what it is, but I like Googled like because I was looking at prima ballerina earlier because of this. (laughs) And yeah, there's one above it, but it it literally said like the name and then Italy. And I was like, I don't care about that. I love the weird rabbit holes we get into trying to understand the stories we're covering. Actually, here's the interesting thing. So Prima Um, Ballerina was like the feminine version and there was like a male version. I don't remember what it was called, but they've actually ballet has combined terms and they now have gender neutral terms. I actually really really like that. Yeah. Yeah. It just makes it gets that song from Fam of the Opera, Prima Donna, first lady on the stage, stuck in my head, and I hate you now. Um, The ballet, the uh, Song of Norway, was a great success, and George was asked to contract with the Ballet Russe for the rest of the year. Um, And he was really glad to get back to it because he had been on Broadway for a lot of years, like being a choreographer for Broadway and Hollywood, and he was like, Yeah, I'm great. I would be grateful to get back to, like, just true dance. So he came back, and at the same time, at the same time, uh, Maria, like, was doing really well. Obviously, she had just had a lead, and her mom was like, you know what? You deserve better. So her mom started demanding a raise for her daughter. Maria was super embarrassed and was like, Mom, stop it. Oh, my God. You cannot stop dance, moms. Right. You super Um, can't. However... (laughs) Uh, Denham, which is the like coordinator of the ballet, actually gave into it and did increase her salary to fifty dollars for a week. And what she was promoted to a like a primetime soloist at that point, which wow, which I think is one step below prima ballerina. That reminds remember. me of the time I was working at Bed Bath, no Bath and Body. I always get confused with Bed Bath and Beyond. I was working at Bath and Body Works, and this was after I had had my blood clot and I was on crutches and I was going to go into work because they had a big sale. And my mom's like, "The fuck are you doing?" I was like, "Well, my leg really hurts," which meant that my blood clot could have come back. I was like, "I'll I'll go into the ER after work." She's like, "I don't." 
fucking think so. So I called around, couldn't find anyone to cover for me. I called the manager and the manager was basically like, well, you better fucking be here. Find someone to be here for you. And Please my tell mom, me your mom took your phone. And my was mom like, you took the phone and was like, excuse me, my daughter needs to go to the emergency room. Do you understand? And my mom did it in the way where she wasn't a bitch, but she was very forceful. Yeah, she it was, didn't it was swear, like, where there is like, no question. Excuse me. My daughter needs to go to the emergency room. Do you understand? And luckily I was able to find someone called me back and was able to cover for me. Luckily, it was nothing. It was actually probably a symptom of my other hip issues that would come to fruition later yeah. in my life where my hips don't fit together. Oh, but I went into great. work the next day on my crutches and the manager didn't say a fucking word. No, <laughs> so moms are sometimes like, I was so embarrassed. Oh yeah, 100%. But like, why am I going into this shitty part-time minimum wage job when I should be in the ER? Like, fuck them. <laughs> exactly. So during this time, George was beginning to become attracted to Maria, both professionally and personally. Um, Maria, however, was kind of oblivious to his affections. <laughs> Quote, it never occurred to me that there was anything more than dancing on his mind. It would have been preposterous to think there was anything personal, which I get. Like, it's kind of like, you know, you're like, he's not playing favorites. I'm just a good dancer. It's fine. Yeah. Well, and also dancing is very passionate. It is. It so. is. And George would continue to cast Maria in important roles. In Dances Concertes, she was part of a jazzy pas de trois, which means like a, a three-part group. Pas de trois. You know, it's like Love a menage a trois, but pas de trois. Say it one more time. Oh, that's your ringtone if you're a Patreon member. <laughs> Which was created by Mary Ellen Moylan, Nicholas Magellanus, and uh, herself. That's awesome. Uh, the steps were very classical in ballet form, but they were presented in a very unique manner. Quote, the accent was sharp, the rhythm swinging and modern. Performing the steps seemed more like an exercise for pleasure and enjoyment than work. It was magical. So that was a quote by Maria, like talking about this specific dance. Mm -hmm. um, shortly before the Ballet Imperial was to open, George informed Maria that she would be the second lead behind Mo Moylan, who was another dancer. Maria recalls, quote, I nearly fainted and I couldn't get over it. So, I mean, like, she was super excited. And as the season wore on, George grew more and more fond of Maria. Oh, George. <laughs> Maria was still fairly ignorant of his his attraction at this point. Um, however, they would slowly become friends. And then one day, George asked her asked her to marry him. Much was, to her surprise. I, I, okay. I love that they haven't even dated. He's just been pining after her. And she's just like, la-di-da. And then he's like, will you marry, like, will me? You marry me? Can we go on a date first? Right. So this happened during the summer of 1945. He had asked her to meet after one of the performances that happened to be in Los Angeles. George opened the car door for her. And when she got in, they sat in silence for a moment before he said, quote, Maria, I would like you to become my wife. So matter of fact, so romantic. I, I still cannot get over this. Like, she has no idea. And just out of nowhere, he's like, will you marry me? God. Quote, this is what she says, her response. Quote, I almost fell out of my seat and when it was unable to respond. She eventually would get around to replying, quote, but George, I'm not sure I love you. I feel that I hardly know you. He answered that it didn't matter. And if the marriage only lasted a few years, that was all right with him. After a day to think it over, Maria accepted. So he's like... 
I feel like I love you. And if it doesn't last, that's fine. I just want a chance, which is really, really romantic, but also kind of creepy at the same time. I was going to say, I can't tell if it's romantic or stupid. Like, this is the kind of shit that only works in a rom-com and in real life. Run. Run. So obviously Marie would tell her parents because she's engaged now. Jesus Christ. Her mom was pissed. (laughs) Her mom sounds like my mom, except for the dance shit. Quote, I've never heard anything more idiotic. (laughs) What is wrong with you? I love her mom so much because her mom is all of us listening right now. Are you shitting me right now? Are you fucking kidding me? so funny. George was unshaken by her mother's objection saying that her the mom would come around eventually if she's only my mother-in-law for a few years i'm okay with that exactly. you better be because she hates you but he was a true romantic and while they were engaged he would make extravagant romantic gestures and treated her with great affection quote he was obviously trying to convince me that our marriage was inevitable i didn't need convincing i was falling in love so that's what she said okay <laughs> Maria and George were married on August 16th. Isn't that my... That's my marriage date. That's weird. Oh, shit. Is I thought yours was like the 24th. No, I'm pretty sure we got married on August 16th. 16th. I, August I 16th. had that day so they, they in my head for like a year. August 16th, 1946. So that is almost 70 years to the day, but it's like 68 years to the day that I got married. That's right, because you were married 2014. Yeah. 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 Um, anyway, so they were married on August 16th, 1946, when she was 20, 21 and he was 42. Oh, shut so the fuck up. So he was double up. her age. Of course he was in love with her. Okay. Um, her parents continued to oppose the marriage and did not attend the ceremony. They were wow. like, no. Nah. The couple did go on to, did not have a traditional honeymoon because for both of them, work was more important. Like they had all these ballet stuff. They were like, nah, we're good. Um, Fair. According to Maria, quote, Passion and romance didn't play a big part in our married life. We <laughs> saved our emotions for the classroom. By that, I think she means the stage. But Yeah. However, she did describe George as a warm, affectionate, and loving husband. So, like, he was good to her. Yeah, I, I, and, and that's kind of his saving grace throughout all this because the plain facts all point to creepy, but the fact that he did treat her with respect and show her love and affection and generally sounds like he was a good loving yeah, no, husband. Yeah, he, no, he seems like he was a decent dude. Yeah, like, this is the exception that proves the rule, guys. If you're in this situation, you fucking run. run. Um, so in 1945, while on tour, uh, Maria was doing her bar, which is like, the you know, it's spelled B-A-R-R-E, but it's literally done at like a uh, railing along the wall. It's like your exercises when you're warming up. Oh, is that when you're like doing the leg lifts yep. and the pirouettes? Um, so she was doing working on her bar when George remarked, "Quote: If only you would learn to do the batiment tendu properly, you wouldn't have to learn anything else." So that's what he said to her. Basically, this was his way of saying that she had to start completely over because the bat batiment tendu is a very very special basic ballet move like very basic so maria said quote i wanted to die but i had seen the difference between mary ellen's who was a pupil of george dancing and and mine i knew he was right so basically like her husband had a different style of dancing that he had taught his dancers and she was like okay i understand what he's saying 
Okay, because it, it, it's. I'm glad you clarified because I I heard that and I was immediately like, oh, so she just like needs to learn one more thing to like. No, basically, max it's level you need out. to start over for the second time in your life. Oh my god, I would kill him. So she began to learn this new style under her husband George. She ended up losing about ten pounds. She elongated her legs and neck. Never described how how she did it, but I would assume ex- I'm going to go with exercise in healthy ways. I'm sure it wasn't, but that's what we're going to go with. I was going to say, I feel like there's not a lot of healthiness she, about this. She learned how to hold her chest high and keep her back straight and keep her feet arched. Quote, my body seemed to be going through a metamorphosis. Like, that's what she said. Um, Maria relearned the basic exercises in the way that George wanted and transformed her greatest week out weakness turnout into a strength. So wow. she, like, completely turned this around. Dana Lova, which who was another um, dancer in the company, the the one that was like first soloist, basically. Yeah, yeah, yeah. That she was the. She actually for. devoted a lot of time to teaching Maria this different art and helping her transform basically this teenage girl into a woman. Even though she wasn't a teenager anymore, she was twenty one, twenty two. But you know, like She's basically helping her kind of become this woman. Yeah. Maria would go on to rise through the ranks of feature soloists as George continued to cast her in important roles. She created, that's what they call it when you're the first person to perform a role in ballet. And I freaking love that. What, feature roles? No, created. Like when you're the first person to perform as a certain character in a ballet, they say you created the role. Oh, okay. I literally thought you meant like she created this role. Okay. That's really cool. So she created the role of Coquette in uh, a ballet called Night Shadow, which was the ballet's most technically challenging role after Danilova, the other, you know, selected the other female role for herself. So she picked the other female role and gave the most technically challenging one to Maria. (laughs) I like to think that in her mind, she was like, nah, girl, this is your moment. Yeah. Empowered Herstory women, empowered women, yeah. even when they have wine hiccups. So that was cute. <laughs> it was um, a very cute hiccup. In, the rest are not going to be like that. So in 1946, George would join um, the patron Lincoln Kirsten to establish the Ballet Society, um, which was basically the precursor and forerunner to the New York City Ballet. So like, you know, just kind of a new company. Um However, Maria still had six months remaining with the Ballet Russe, and so she would obviously fulfill her contract with the Ballet Russe and then join George again in 1947. At that point, um, he was actually in France working with the Paris Ballet Company. So she went to France with him. Or rather, she joined him in France because he was already there. Yeah. So when Maria arrived, she was put to work immediately because... That's what they do, apparently. So she was given a bunch of roles. And when another dancer pulled out of the main show shortly before opening night, they put Maria basically into a position to learn a very, very difficult role on very short notice, like less than a week. Oh, my God. In spite of the difficulties, opening night was a huge success. And the French press loved her and her dancing style. Um, and they actually loved her background even more. So there there are some what today are going to be considered um, politically incorrect statements. But I'm quo- I'm going to try and speak the French, but then I'm going to also say the American 
what it means. Okay. And so I'm not trying to offend anyone. This is literally what they wrote back then. So these are some of the headlines the night after her performance. So Pierre Rouge danse à la opera pour les rois de Suède, which meant Redskin dances at the opera uh, for the king of Sweden. Okay. I did pre-warn you. I, you did, and I neglected to prepare. Okay. Um, next is Les Filles des Grands Chefs and Zien danse la opera, which is the daughter of the great Indian chief dances at the opera. Okay. Which I like that one better. I was going to say, it got less offensive. Exactly. Somehow. Um, also, her colleagues were actually, like, super appreciative of her being there, which is kind of, like, clearly the friend, the French ball- ballerinas were more accepting than the Russian ballerinas. The Russians were a um, little snobby. <laughs> so not only did her colleagues appreciate her being there, but the French audiences clearly loved her. Yeah. Um, however, after six months in Paris, they they both... Maria and George decided to return to New York. Um, however, during that time in Paris, Maria was the first American to perform with the Paris Opera. So, oh, so the first American ballerina yep, to, perform to perform with, with the ballet op- the opera ba- ballet company, basically, which is wow. super cool. So when they returned to the states, Maria quickly became. Um, a, a, a star like basically they she left came back and she was a star again and she and actually has a way of transforming women into star particularly women of color like they go to france everyone in france loves them and american goes i know well i guess if france is into them maybe we should stop being a bunch of racist right? assholes <laughs> and actually when she came back she became the first uh united states prima ballerina like we had wow. never had one before so she became so first american pre prima ballerina and the first of the new york city ballet company because that's who she had signed with who's the i don't know is there like a council of ballerinas i would like to think so who all meet and they're on these like large pedestals looking over you and they have cloaks and they take them off and they have flowers and crowns and pretty little tutus and they're like we judge you now ballerina right so during this time george created a role basically specifically for Maria and the dance technique that he had taught her called the Firebird. This was in 1949. That's hot. What was written of the, her performance as the Firebird was, so she created that role too, obviously. And this, so what was written was this quote, Maria Talchief made an electrifying appearance emerging as the nearest approximation to a prima ballerina that we, we had yet enjoyed. Which, because you know, like America hadn't had a prima ballerina, right? Yet. Right. They were they were all Russian. <laughs> so the role created a sensation, and this is what launched her into becoming America's first prima ballerina. Um, what was nice too, side effect is because this. You remember I had said that her husband had started like the precursor to the New York City Ballet. Mm-hmm. At this point, it had become the New York City Ballet, and okay. her fame, especially her becoming the prima ballerina, really like helped this company take off and she was actually asked to perform as many as eight times in a week so that's at least two shows in one day i was gonna say my brain literally i know my crapped out because i was like how many days Um, are in a week (laughs) sadly short a few years later she and georgia nulled their marriage they decided that they both were attracted to other people like it was very amicable like yeah they were like we're attracted to other people our marriage has kind of run its course we're gonna separate it reminds me of that part Super in, sex, in the Sex in the City movie that we watched, where uh, I don't know Sex in the City. Samantha enough. and like her 
Boy really toy, hot boy yeah. toy yeah they, they just decided they were in they different break stages. up because yeah. you know marriages right. don't have to last long i might to be good. have to watch that after this i remember we do watched homework that. and watch sex in the city I, okay so i've watched the sex second in the one city. is good too but not as good as the first i've watched sex in the city the show See, maybe once in my life I've seen like one episode and then you had me watch the movie, which is something I never thought I would do. It's actually, I really like the movie. I had a lot of fun watching it. And then we went to the the cities and the science museum. She poo-kipsied in her pants. (laughs) See, I don't remember enough. I do remember that. What are you doing after this? We should watch it again. That line just really stuck with me where it's like, sometimes a relationship doesn't have to last forever to be successful. It's just successful for a certain period of time. And if you can, yeah, break it off. And amicably amicably (laughs) you know like what's wrong with that right so later that same year actually maria would go on to marry el moraza naterboff who was someone who worked in like a charter airline so not not related to ballet oh wow so she went way in the other direction um she they they would have a happy marriage like there was nothing wrong with the guy but they would divorce two years later and then in 1955, she met Chicago businessman Henry Buzz Pashan Jr. Henry Buzz Pashan Jr. I don't know what his, his middle name just had a D, but like his nickname was Buzz. Why? Um, and she said, quote, he was very happy, outgoing, and knew nothing about ballet, which was very refreshing. He was also really into honey, yeah, exactly. and I never really fully got that. The couple would marry uh, the following June, so June of 1966, and actually honeymooned with a ballet tour of Europe. So basically, she was like, I have to go on tour. You want to come with? Emphasis on the honey. He is a bee. It was during this time period. So she's still dancing during all of this. Um, And actually, during part of this, shortly before she met Buzz, she actually was given the role of the Sugar Plum Fairy in George's new rendition of the Nutcracker, which at the time was really obscure. It was a super obscure ballet. And her performance in the role of the Sugar Plum, plum fat Fairy actually, <laughs> I know. I've sugar had too much plum wine. fatty. <laughs> <laughs> so her role as the Sugar Plum Fairy actually kind of transformed it into the Christmas classic we know today. Because, like, honestly, this is the time of year that you're at least, you know, you're going to see the Nutcracker fucking everywhere. Yeah. Because it is, like, the Christmas ballet. She's one of the reasons it is that. That's wild. I had a VHS growing up where it was, like, a stage production of the Sugar Plum Fairy, or not... The Nutcracker, including the Sugar Prom Fatty, that, uh, you know, it, it, it was filmed and I would watch it growing up and I always thought it was, kind of, I didn't understand the concept of a ballet, so I always thought it was kind of weird that like no one fucking talked. Right? You're <laughs> like, what the fuck is this shit? But it was, it was so visually stimulating. It was really it cool. Is. I wouldn't have it's had very... that without Maria Talchi. Exactly. I wouldn't have been so confused. So with Buzz, uh, Maria actually had her only child. So she took some time off from ballet to have a child that she named Elise Maria Pachon, obviously. Mm-hmm. She would actually become an award-winning poet and the executive director of the Poetry Society of America in her own right. So her child went on to do great things. Damn, girl! Um, she also ended up having a stepdaughter because Buzz had a daughter from a previous marriage. 
Um, and they actually would remain together even though Buzz had a brief imprisonment for tax evasion. Um, <laughs> but they would stay together until he died in 2004. So the like, ultimate that, white collar crime. That was clearly like, you know, he was her end all be all in the end. Okay. She would go on to remain with the New York City Ballet being, you know, basically one of their top soloists until February of 1960. Other than, you know, she would occasionally take breaks to work with other companies. She worked with the Chicago Opera and the San Francisco Ballet and the Royal Danish Ballet and the Hamburg. So she like traveled all over because obviously she went to... um, She's using that passport. Exactly. (laughs) She went to Germany because the Hamburg Ballet is German and she went to the Dutch. The Netherlands. She went to where the windmills come Sorry. from. <laughs> well, I'm sitting here the and I'm looking at the words. I'm looking at the word Danish and I'm like, what country is that? God, one of my ultimate regrets. In I've life. had too much wine. I've had more wine than Emily because I keep pouring myself yes. more. And one I of my ultimate regrets in life is when I was going uh, to to and from Scotland. Actually, I stopped at the Amsterdam airport and they had oh. slippers that looked like those wooden clogs, but they were slippers. Why would you not buy those? Because I am. I was young and I you was are foolish. a trash person. I am a trash. I totally okay. Will one of our lovely listeners? We will pay. We will Venmo you back. I will Venmo you shit because Buy us I both. want. Buy us both some. Well, it was one of those things. Like I was going to Scotland. I'm like Emily, don't spend money. Yeah, on, like two or three. I get it, but you're still a trash person. But then I was coming back. I don't understand. Ugh. I was I was actually very stressed coming back because a storm had fucked up my flight. To go to well, plus the person in front of you was like, I have weed, and you were like, shit, I'm gonna get okay, arrested. That was later. <laughs> anyway, that was after. That's an entirely different story. If you really want to hear it, check out our Patreon. If you like, DM us, email us, whatever. I will yeah, tell we'll the tell story you. about um, when someone almost got drug busted next yeah. to me. <laughs> anyway, so she was at this point. She was getting paid about two thousand dollars a week, which was the, reportedly the highest salary ever paid to a dancer at the time. Oh shit! She, I mean, she was making. Bank. She's making more than the Sashas of the world. Um. So after she left the New York City Ballet, she joined the American Ballet Theater. First as a guest ballerina, just kind of like testing the waters. And then Cameo as, style. Exactly. And then as a prima ballerina, you know, so she was like, nah, I'm, I'm, I'm the head now. Yeah. She would go on to appear alongside Danish dance dancer uh, Eric Brunn in Russia. So like she actually went to Russia and performed. Oh, shit. And in doing so, she became the first American dancer to perform at Moscow's famed Bolshoi Theater, which is like a huge thing. Well, and then considering that the Russian ballerinas were so uh, kind of elitist yeah. against oh, yeah. anyone else, the fact that she is going to Russia to perform in a ballet is it's nuts. huge. Yeah. Nuts. And she would actually go on to be not just confined to the stage. She went on to to appear on TV shows such as the Ed Sullivan show. She portrayed Anna Pavlova in the 1952 movie, movie musical called Million Dollar Mermaid. She was Rudolph Nervi's partner of choice in his American debut. So I believe he was a Russian dancer, I think. I don't know. I didn't look him up. But she chose, he chose her to be like his person like i'm coming to america and you're the person that's going to be with me yeah um that's which crazy. is huge yeah um she would actually go on to relocate briefly to germany completely to work with the ha- hamburg ballet 
toward like the end of her career. So she briefly like ended up in Germany. One of her last performances was in 1966 uh, as a title role before she retired from dancing. Because at this time, she kind of started feeling alone. She was missing her husband. So she retired, not wishing to dance beyond her prime. Because dancing, much like football and soccer and other extreme intense sports, sports, yeah, your prime is your 30s. Actually, no. Your prime is your 20s. And when you're in your 30s, they're like, okay, you're still good, but eh. There was actually a swimmer, I want to say her name was Dana Torres, can't remember, don't quote me, but I remember when I was swimming, she competed yeah. at the Olympics at 40 after having at least one child, and, and that huge. was the whole article that like, oh my god, this Olympian is competing at 40 years old, and that's swimming. Not to say that swimming is less intense, but, but I just want to say most, like- Most sports, about 90% of people will be in their 20s. Yeah. Yeah, it, you, you, ha- you have at pretty, gymnastics and then you're in your teens. You have a pretty short shelf life for most professional yeah. sports. So like I said, she was also feeling alone. And so she decided to retire, go back to her husband. Although just remember that during her career as a ballet dancer, she danced throughout America, Europe, South America. She also went to Japan and Russia and Germany. So I think like, it's in Europe. She's yeah, <laughs> Europe somewhere. Oh, that's right. I did say Europe. I'm sorry. I thought I missed that. But you know, like she hit kind of all the major like places. She did a lot with her time. After retiring, she went on to move to Chicago, where her and Buzz kind of lived out the rest of their life. She would go on to serve as the director of ballet for the Lyric Opera of Chicago. And she actually founded uh, the Lyric Opera's ballet school where she would teach the method that George taught her, kind of leading to this whole new technique. Explaining her teaching philosophy, she would go on to say, quote, new ideas are essential, but you must retain respect for the art of ballet. And that means the artist too, or else it is no longer in art form. Aww. I like how that kind of pays tribute to the old school techniques that she grew up with, but also her openness to learn right? new things and to start over right. more than once and like retrain her body. I remember having you do that in swimming. Yeah. You know, like, oh, here's a different way to do the freestyle. It's you insane. think there's only one way. There's fucking not. Right. <laughs> so her and her sister, sister Marjorie, who had become a ballet dancer in her own right. Not a, not as impressive as her sister, but, but still, that's still cool. You know, they would actually go on to found the Chicago City Ballet and be like co-artistic directors. Unfortunately, it only lasted about six years just kind of due to various things. Um, but despite the company failing, the Chicago Tribune, so a local newspaper, called her, quote, a force in the history of Chicago dance. So, Hell like, yeah. She would, like, they still loved her, even though it didn't really work out. Six years is not bad, though. I don't know. Right. Um, another person that worked with her on the Lyric Opera of Chicago described her as, quote, a consummate professional. She realized who and what she was, but didn't flaunt it. She was unpretentious. Another dancer remarked, quote, she didn't seem to be frightened of the stage like some of the others. She had an iron will inside. She phrased her curls and extensions as delicately or as strong as the music itself. So like people loved her. I love that combination of strength and femininity because it's often portrayed that 
to be strong, you have to abandon your feminine traits. We've talked about this before with like the idea of a strong woman is Katniss from Hunger Games who embodies a lot of masculine traits. That's one way to be a strong woman. Right, you can be feminine. You and can strong. be Elle Woods from Legally Blonde and be feminine as fuck and still fuck, a goddamn yeah, I badass. Love that. Oh, I love it so much. Um, Even uh, what was it? Is it Cher from uh, fuck. God damn, where she does the Valley Girl thing and she gets together with her stepbrother, Paul Rudd. Yeah, I think it's what is that? What is that movie called? Clueless. Clueless, thank you. Everyone is yelling at me right now yep. like, God damn it, Emily. But that's another way to be strong female right and so yeah her combination of like the strength and the femininity is not something we get as much as we should so surprisingly recently in december of 2012 unfortunately maria broke her hip and she died on april 11th 2013 from complications stemming from that injury no the hip strikes again (laughs) hip problems are the worst so oh honey she died in 2013 2013 that was so recent so legacy Legacy. I love that's catching on. Thank you, Simpsons. Maria was considered America's first major prima ballerina and was very clearly the first Native American to hold the rank. She did remain closely tied to her Osage history throughout her life until her death, speaking out against stereotypes and misconceptions about Native Americans on many occasions. She was also involved in the America for Indian Opportunity and was director of the Indian Council Fire Achievement Award. She and her sister Marjorie are counted as two of a group of five Native American ballet dancers from Oklahoma born in the 1920s. Way to go, Oklahoma. Yay. <laughs> uh, she wished, however, she did wish to be judged on the merits of her dance alone. Quote, above all, I wanted to be appre- appreciated as a prima ballerina who happened to be Native American, never as someone who was an American Indian ballerina. So bas- basically what we've said the last few episodes, that it doesn't matter that you're the first. It doesn't matter that you're black it doesn't matter that you're asian it doesn't matter that you're you know it doesn't matter what your skin color is you just want to be recognized as what you are whether it's a computer scientist or a ballerina or you know a tennis player or whatever else it is right you know uh, maria has been called quote quote one of the most brilliant American ballerinas of the 20th century. And that was the New York Times that said that. Damn. Um, she paved the way for dancers who were not the traditional mold of, you know, ballerinas. Some Someone named Jacques d'Ambrose, who is like really big in the ballet world, said, quote, when you thought of Russian ballet, it was Alanova, who was like a Russian dancer. Um, with English ballet, it was Fontenay, and for American ballet, it was Tall Chief. She was grand in the grandest way. Of all the ballerinas of the last century, few achieved Maria Tall Chief's, Tall Chief's artistry and kind of conscious dreaming. Oh, wow. basically a reverie with a backbone. Wow, is what they called her. Reverie with a backbone. I love that. She's credited in breaking down ethnic barriers as well as stereotypical barriers where you know russians were on top kind of a thing Mm -hmm. she kind of let americans flourish in a field long dominated by the russians and europeans she once reflected on her own career saying quote i was in the middle of magic in the presence of genius and thank god i knew it oh she 
Yeah. yeah I know. She was Betty known, Marie. <laughs> she was known for dazzling, quote, dazzling audiences with her speed, energy, and fire. She had an electrifying passion, and she combined footwork with athleticism. Ashley Weeder, who was the artistic director of a ballet company, remarked, quote, when you watch Tall Chief on video, you see that aside from her technical polish, there is a burning passion she brought to her dancing. In her interpretation of Blanchine's Firebird, she was consumed both inside and out. She was not just a great dancer, but a real artist, a true interpreter who brought her personality to bear on the dancing. She's also credited with being a master of the perfect pause, which is that moment of stillness, allowing the audience and the narrative to kind of keep pace with it. You know, you know, you've seen dancers where they're like in the middle of a pose and they just kind of like stop. Yeah. It, she, it's kind of that moment for you to like be yeah. like, <gasps> yeah, she was kind of, and like, then you move they on. They say she was a master of that. So honors. She has been honored by the Oklahoma governor for both her ballet achievements and her pride in her Native American history. June 29th of 1953 is also, I assume it's June 29th every year, but it says on June 29th, 1953, it, it was declared Maria Tall Chief Day. Oh my God. I love women who have a day. Right. Um, there is a mural in, o- in the Oklahoma Capitol building called the Flight of Spirit, which is for Indian ballerinas and Maria is among them. She is the subject of a life-size bronze statue located in the Tulsa History Museum, or Society, sorry. The Osage Nation honored her with the title Princess Wazithumba, which I'm sure I pronounced that wrong and I'm sorry, but it basically means woman of two worlds. Um, In 1996, she received the Kennedy Center Honor for Lifetime Achievements. It states, quote, Maria was both the inspiration and the living expression of the best of the United States has given to the world. Her individualism and her genius came together to create one of the most vital and beautiful chapters in the history of American dance. Wow. Yeah, like that's moving. Uh, Maria is also an inductee into the National Women's Hall of Fame. Hell yeah! And has twice been named Woman of the Year by the Washington Press Club. Oh shit! Twice? Twice. Oh my god, Uh, I love it. In 1999, she was awarded the American National Medal of Arts. In 2011, she received the Chicago History Museum's Making History Award for Distinction in the Performing Arts. In 2006, the the Metropolitan Museum of Art presented a special tribute to her titled A Tribute to Ballet great Maria Tallchief during which because obviously she was still alive at that time Mm -hmm. she announced that Kenneth Von Hedick as her protege basically to take you know take on her teachings and whatnot Um, and then in 2018 Maria became the first one of the first inductees into the Native American Hall of Fame the Native American Hall of Fame the National Native American Hall of Fame she was one of the first inductees I'm really embarrassed to say that, that I didn't that know that's that the first time yep. I ever, yeah that's the first time I've heard of that and I feel like we sh- need to be dipping into that well more I mean often. clearly it obviously was just created in if she was one of the first to be inducted in so, 2018 yeah. I will say so when Artemis emailed us saying that this month was I know um, I felt really bad because I had no Indigenous idea. People's History Month. I looked it up and it actually was just created in 2019 by everyone. Take a moment to be shocked. 
Donald Trump. Wait, really? Yeah. That, that is actually. I, I read it like three times. I was like, are you fucking serious? I don't actually... think it was his idea, though. No, probably no. not. They were probably well, like, hey, like... you're kind of a sinking ship. Do this one good thing. Yeah, there there was some shit about him uh, honoring Susan B. Anthony on her birthday. And it's like, you would have hated her when she was alive. Oh, yeah. No. Let, let, let's all be honest. We all know what kind of person you are and who you like and don't like. She was a nasty woman to you. So yeah. you can you can only like act a certain way so often before people are just like you can't even pretend to be anything else anyway that's not about that but i was less embarrassed because it's a very recent thing although that's also embarrassing that it took us that long to get there (laughs) 2019 and now we have a month dedicated to indigenous people's heritage month like uh anyway Yeah. We're going to get back to being amazed by Maria Tallcheap. Well, that's actually the end. What a crazy story, though. I had, and here's the thing, I've never been, like, into ballet or anything, but, like, that's amazing. Yeah. Also, I Googled her, like, when you were towards the beginning of your story. We don't. T- we don't tend to judge the women or comment on their appearances I mean, because people, the appearance of a person really has nothing to do to with know who they what are. ballerinas look like, and she is very much a ballerina. Oh, she's, but she's gorgeous, fucking stunning. Um, there's also like, there's there, a picture of her when she's like old, and I'm still like, you're fucking beautiful. Yeah, I'm like, girl, you like, give me your secrets. Uh, but there's some there's a picture of her in like a traditional headdress. Oh, yeah. And yeah. in some traditional outfits. And then, yeah, tons of ballerina shots. I mean, she was and it's gorgeous. Just, like, you can see her muscles. Good God. Like, yeah. I I don't want to take away from the strength and skill that it took to be a ballerina, let alone a top, like, prima donna ballerina. Yeah, no, she's... You can just tell that it's, like, all friggin' muscle. Yeah, just... Absolutely There's a picture incredible. of her, like it's way down on the Google search, but it's of her and like a little tiny girl. And it's, I don't know if it's her daughter. Oh, is that where she's bending over? Yeah. And it's yeah. like a little girl. And I'm like, I don't know if that's her daughter or what, but it's real cute. Oh, I know. Oh, that is her daughter. I clicked oh on it God. and it says that's that's her and her a daughter, Lisa. But even out of her like ballerina, like uh, what did someone comment on her like infectious smile or something? I don't know. Or was that something else we were talking about? Well, there there are some pictures of her when she's not like full ballerina and she's smiling. She's She's just got like a really bright, lovely smile. There's she has those eyes, those like sultry eyes. Like she has really big eyes, but they're very like in some of them they're very like I want to drown in those pools. Uh, But there's also a who was book on her. I saw that. It was really cute. Who was Maria Tallchief. If you don't know, that's like a a children's book series that highlights historical figures. So there's who was Amelia Earhart, who was Walt Disney, and there is a who was Maria Tallchief, which I'm like shocked because every time I see those books, they're like kind of the big names that we all know. Right. And And I mean, clearly she was a big name in dance. Right. Yeah. Like the the fact that there's a book about it is kind of shocking to me too. That's amazing. Well, thank you so much for sharing You're that because I can guarantee you I would have like never found no. her on my so own. So thank you, Artemis. Thank you, Artemis. This is Stephanie. And Tux. <laughs> from the podcast Beyond Reproach, a show about political scandals from American history. But it's fun, we swear. The idea behind our show is that politicians and government officials are meant to be public servants. 
and their behavior should be beyond reproach. But if history has taught us anything, it's that a lot of politicians are total scumbags. So we decided to do a show where we drink period-appropriate historic cocktails while exploring some of the government scandals and shitty politicians of America's past. We are not historians. We're just a couple of drunks who never shut up and love history. We hope you'll join us on Beyond Reproach for some big facts, good laughs, a little bit of swearing, a lot of drinking, and a real good time. America's history is juicy. We just add gin. All right. Well, Kelly, thank you so much for sharing that amazing story. I am covering an indigenous woman from a very different time who had a very different purpose and place in history. That's exciting, though. It's Uh, nice when we kind of contrast each other. Like, we have the kismet moment, and then we contrast. uh, Again, we're like playing a game of chicken where we are constantly just winging each other. Yeah. It's fun. That's so. how we like to play, live life, play life. <laughs> All right. Well, today I'm covering Witamu, and I hope I am saying that correctly. I did look up pronunciation guides, so fingers crossed I'm doing my best. Witamu, which means sweetheart. Oh, I know. Uh, she was born between 1635 and 1640, so we're going quite a ways back. Yeah, that's... Yeah. yeah. So uh, she was born in modern day Rhode Island. So in the New England area, her father was a sachem or chief of the of the Pocasset tribe. OK. OK. Here's the thing. I really worked on these pronunciations, but I've had two bottles of wine. So things are going to get sloppy and they're out of my control. So okay. I'm doing my I best. Love you. Uh, I think it's Pocasset tribe. Okay. So Pocasset. The Pocasset people were members of the larger Wampanoag people. So the Wampanoag people were made up of several different tribes that lived all over modern New England. So it was like the Wampanoag Confederacy that was made up of all these specific tribes, including the Pocasset. Okay. So it's I think, like... I think I understand. Yeah. It, it, it kind of it kind of strikes me as... And this is how I put it together because this is my like modern understanding. You know, we live in Minnesota, so we're all Minnesotans, but you know, the people from Rochester are different than the people from Stewartville and the cities and Duluth and you know it's like we're all made up of different kind of mini communities with all our different culture and but we're all a part of Minnesota yeah so there's an overarching and then there's little tribes that make up that anyway because Weetamu's father had no sons Weetamu was the oldest and she grew up preparing to take over as Sachem I also read that she was referred to as a sunk squaw, sunk meaning elevated and squaw meaning woman. I'm just going to use sachem. I'm sorry if it's wrong, but I just, it's gender neutral and it was commonly used. So I'm just going with it. Yeah. It's also a little easier to say than sunk squaw. Yeah, I agree. (laughs) So to prepare for her role as as sachem, Witamu pulled double duty growing up. Not only did she practice traditionally feminine work like preparing animal hides, cooking, and farming, but she was also trained in hunting, fishing, fighting, and diplomacy, which were traditionally like masculine skills. So she would like watch her father as he was ruling sachem and learn from him. When she was 14 years old, Witamu embarked on a vision quest. So this was a coming-of-age ritual with, which consisted of trekking alone into the woods and fasting in order co- to commune with the spirits. Okay. So uh, vision quests kind of differ from tribe to tribe and, you know, nation to nation, but that's just a general 
overview. So it's like a spiritual quest coming of age ritual. Now, I think we can all agree 2020 has not been the easiest year, but the world that Weetamu was born into was one of chaos and death. Like, if you think we've got it bad, shit was crazy. By the time that she was born, the first European settlers had already arrived in North America, and the diseases they brought had wiped out 90%, 9-0, of the Wampanoag population. Oh, shit. And that's just the Wampanoag people. We're not even talking about any other indigenous peoples, because obviously, you know, uh, Foreign settlers had come, you know, to Florida and all across the East Coast. It was a whole thing. So, like, can you imagine? I actually looked up how many people it would take to wipe out 90% of the U.S. population. And I was like, well, that's not an accurate comparison because it's different numbers. But it's just, it's devastating. 90% is all you need. Yes. Because of this devastation, rival tribes began moving in on their territories. It's like, you don't have anyone to defend these lands. We going to come in and take it. If that wasn't enough, English settlers had also been expanding their settlements. So it's like they're getting it from all sides. It's like, okay, 90% of you are dead and everyone's coming in to take your land, which is already going to be a theme here. Right. So. In case you didn't know what yeah. happened to our indigenous people. <laughs> In case you have no concept of American history. So these were the issues that Weetamu inherited when she became Sachem. Thankfully, she had a plan. First, she married the Sachem of the Saugus tribe, uh, which was another tribe of the Wampanoag Confederacy. So this move was meant to consolidate power and secure a powerful ally. So you know, we see this a lot in women of power, especially royalty. They marry to consolidate power and to make allies and secure those bonds. It sounds kind of like, at least to me, it kind of sounded like she was in charge of this. She's like, I'm going to do this instead of someone telling her, yeah, you're going to do of this. At least in the way you wrote it. Yeah. <laughs> Her three head cannon. She was in control constantly. Heck yeah. Uh, there was just one problem with this plan, though. Her husband died shortly after the wedding. Oh, Bummer. no. But Weetamu didn't just bounce back. She stuck the landing when she married Wamasuta, the son of Masasoit, who was the sachem of the entire Wampanoag people. So the individual she, tribes she had their sachems. steps up there. Yeah, so the individual tribes had their sachems or chiefs, and then there was the chief or sachem of the whole, like, Wampanoag. So he was, like, a step above all the yeah. other sachems. Fun fact about Wamasuta, he was at the first Thanksgiving with the pilgrims, which by the time this episode comes out is going to be super relevant because this is the week wow. of Thanksgiving, correct? Correct. Am I making that up? Nope. Okay, good. So then Weetamu's younger sister married Wamasuta's younger brother, Metacom. So she marries the older brother, her who's sister the marries son the of the, the head guy, and then her younger sister marries the younger brother. So these marriages didn't just secure Weetamu power, but power and security for the Pokaset people as a whole, because they are now integral to the center of Wampanoag power. Yeah. So during this time, the Wampanoag were working peacefully with the English settlers of Plymouth to help fend off rival tribes. And for our international listeners, if you haven't heard Plymouth Rock, so Plymouth was like one of the first English colonies that really got settled. I believe that's where the first Thanksgiving was. Mm -hmm. Yeah. So it's if you've heard we didn't land on Plymouth Rock, Plymouth Rock landed on us. That's what we're talking about. 
However, uh, we don't know what these interactions were like for Weetamu. So the Wampanoag are working with the English settlers, but like we don't know how they viewed her. The English settlers had strict ideas about a woman's place in society, and Leader wasn't I one of them. <laughs> well, they were also all Puritans. They were like religious to the 10th power and very conservative. Still, I roll. Yes. In fact, it's thought that some of the lesser known sachems from this time were assumed to be male simply because they held the title of leader. So women have literally been erased from history because we assume that they were men because they were leaders. Oh, you tried to do that in my story. I did! See, internalized misogyny is a problem and we all need to be aware so we can address it. But thank you for correcting me in a kind way. So I could learn and be better. In 1661, Masasoit, the sachem of the Wampanoag, died and Wamasuta, Witamu's husband, inherited his title. So she's like essentially queen of the Wampanoag. Being wife of the sachem of the Wampanoag and a sachem in her own right caused Weetamu's standing to skyrocket. She is big shit. Yeah. So things were going well until the English settlers demanded more land from the Wampanoag people. They were becoming emboldened because they weren't as reliant on the help of the indigenous tribes, which had been offered when they had first arrived. Because let's remember... Most of these settlers had been wiped out, like, from the first winter. Like, they were fucked because they had no idea how to deal with the North American climate. And then the Wampanoag came in and they were like, hey, we'll help you out. And actually, things were pretty amicable uh, for a while. Kelly and I actually saw a, went to uh, the Science Museum Mm -hmm. and they had this whole exhibit on race and they talked about like the early days of the English settlers and indigenous peoples. Yeah, and how super chill. There wasn't like a ton of racism until the settlers wanted stuff and it was a lot easier to dehumanize them. To dehumanize the indigenous peoples to justify taking their shit. Yeah, it was terrible. And so racism literally came from we want your we shit want your we shit. want uh, we want a divine reason to take it. Yeah. Because there's no other reason. So the situation became so tense that Wamasuta was kidnapped at gunpoint by settlers and brought to Plymouth where they accused him of selling land to people other than them. They're like, well, we have an exclusive deal here and you're giving land to other people. So fuck you. And while he was being held captive, Wamasuta became sick and died. So the leader of the whole Wampanoag people died while in the custody of English settlers. Yeah, that's bad. After, actually, I shouldn't say custody, while being a captive of the English settlers because they kidnapped him. Metacombe, Wamasuta's younger brother, and Witamu's brother-in-law became sachem of the Wampanoag. So he's the younger brother. He elevates. to a woman. Yeah. Like, you know, if there's no men involved, the women can ascend, but if there's a guy in line. Yeah. So kidnapping their More leader. Rolls. Yes. <laughs> so kidnapping their leader and maybe killing him because it's suspected that Wamasuta was poisoned. At least that's mm. definitely what, you know, his yeah. brother and wife thought. Didn't sit well with Medicom and the widow Weetamu. They were done and washed their hands of the settlers. Good. Now, if you're an American history buff, Metacomb, also known as Metacomet, may ring a bell. And if his actual name doesn't, his nickname King Philip might. 
So that's because there was this little thing called King Philip's War or Metacom's Rebellion, also known as Metacomet's Rebellion. I just said Metacom because it was the first thing I read. We all know what's going on here. might be the correct one, but who knows? It might. I don't know. So trying to stop the English from taking more Wampanoag land, Metacom began attacking English settlements in 1675. So this was his rebellion. He's like, you need to stop taking our land. You need to stop killing my brother. (laughs) Wait, you already did that. Yeah. Like, he's like, okay, we're fucking done here. I'm pushing back. There's no more nice talk. Stop taking our shit. While all this is going on, Weetamu married a third time, but we don't know much about it. The marriage ended and Weetamu got married for a fourth time, this time to a man named Pitanawit. Uh, so when Metacom began fighting against the in- English, Pitanawit sided with the English. Why would you marry him? Well, I think this was before he sided, and then they gave him the name Ben. So it wasn't mm. uncommon for yeah. indigenous peoples to be given or even adopt english names so like medicome and king philip because that's what they gave him exactly that wasn't like just a nickname that the settlers gave him because they couldn't pronounce medicome or metacomet that was uh medicome's father to kind of make nice with the settlers was like give me and my sons english names that you can call them and philip was the thing and because he's the ruler king philip there we go so Wittemu decided to stand with her people and fight against the English, and she dissolved her fourth marriage. She's like, bye bye. <laughs> she's like, nah, I'm done. Get the fuck out of here. So this was good news for Metacomb because Wittemu commanded an army of 300 warriors. She also married a fifth time, this time to Quinnipin, a sachem of the Narragansett tribe. So this had three advantages. First... The Narragansett tribe had once been enemies of the Wampanoag, so they were the rival one of the rival tribes right, that, but now they, this brought that the peace. Wampanoag and the English settlers had teamed up to fight. So the marriage solidified this union. Like, hey, yep. we're all good. We're going to forget about the bad shit. We're going to team up and Take piss the on English. the English settlers. Yes. Second, the uh, Narragansett had become allies with Bet- Metacomb. So the marriage also reinforced Wittemu's commitment to Metacomb and his causes. Yep. There is like a tribal thing and a personal thing. Third, it gave Wittemu the allegiances of every major Wampanoag tribe. Bonus benefit, her husband was hot, apparently. He was described as very handsome. Hey, so like <laughs> you don't get that a lot. Usually it's the women they talk about. Yeah. So he must have been like real good looking. Yeah, he was like a, uh, described as like a handsome warrior. I'm like, mm, he hot. So we to um Yeah, <laughs> God damn it. He was a real person. I know. Okay, real quick side fact. If you want to hear uh, some information about the real Pocahontas, which spoiler, that wasn't even her real name. Listen to Hashtag History's yeah. episode, The Real Story of Pocahontas. And John Smith. And John Smith. It's good. Anyways, back to what we were talking yes. about. Back to so, we to move. Wittemu, Metacomb, and Quinnipin would lead raids on the English settlements all across New England from night errors. Dyslexia. 1675, Yay. not 1975, to 1676. Like, man, we jumped ahead. Yeah. This shit actually is still happening. <laughs> 
Despite being outnumbered, the Wampanoag's cleverness and skill kept them fighting and wrecking English settlements. So their whole goal was to just make this as much of a pain in the ass for the English settlers as possible so they would back off. Right. If the English had dismissed Weetamu due to her gender before, they could no longer ignore her. She was a powerful leader of the Wampanoag and fierce warrior who commanded hundreds. She was described by English records as second only to Medicome in terms of, quote, the mischief that has been done and the blood that has been shed in this war. She is killing everyone. (laughs) Like, Like when I first read that, I was like, oh, mischief, you know whatever oh no she the blood okay she's right up all in their faces with the knife yes (laughs) during the war Weetamu even gave birth to a child jesus tragically the child died shortly after birth. oh no war puts a lot of stress on the body smallpox (laughs) a lot god i mean there's so much going on back then name a thing Sadly, the tragedy only compounded. While the Wampanoag were holding their own, the English slowly chipped away at their forces and devastated them. Because they're, oh God, what's the thing from from Hamilton? We're outgunned, outmanned, outnumbered. Okay, I'm going to (laughs) stop. We need to to get drunk and watch Hamilton together. I just need to watch Hamilton, period. No, we need to watch it together because I have yet to watch it on Disney Plus because I want to have, like, I want to make an event out of it. I've never watched Hamilton. Uh, I haven't either. I just listened to the soundtrack a hundred times. Well, I've never listened to all of it. I've heard, like, two or three songs. Guys, rate us five stars, and at the end of your rating, put Kelly, watch Hamilton with Emily, and we will do it. So... Over 750 Wampanoag people were killed during the war, and those that were captured were sold into slavery, including Weetamu's sister and her husband. I know. Weetamu's life would also come to a tragic end. In August of 1676, the English defeated the Wampanoag in battle. While trying to escape across the Taunton River, Weetamu drowned. I also read that she was charging into battle across the river when she drowned. But I guess the river doesn't really care if you're coming or going. No, not really. So she drowned regardless. You know, I I, I was going to put her street ahead. Can she was charging into battle and low key she was. But either way, we've already established she's a fierce warrior. You know, I don't yeah. think I need to justify her as a warrior anymore. So Weetamu's body was discovered by the English and horribly mutilated. Mm. Then they decapitated her and displayed her head on a pole as a warning and a trophy. And I also read it was said that when her people saw this, they like broke down. Oh, I'm sure. Because she she was really beloved by her people. She was a very uh, strong and effective leader. And to see her in such a state was devastating. Legacy, because yeah, it, she dies this horrible death, yeah. and that's kind of it. There are places in the White Mountains of New Hampshire that have been named after Weetamu, like Mount Weetamu, Weetamu Falls, Weetamu Glen, Weetamu Rock, and Weetamu Trail. Yay! Are you guessing the theme? This is actually interesting considering there's no proof she ever actually visited this area. Nice. She's also featured in a poem, The Bridal of Pennacock. Love it. By John Greenleaf Whittier. Whittier? Whittier. Sorry. 
It's a weird name. There's a lot of I's, a lot of T's. It's probably this poem, actually, that led many to believe that Weetamoon was associated with New Hampshire as he identifies her as being from there in this poem. And I actually, I read in multiple places that she was born in modern-day Rhode Island and then also modern-day Cape Cod. I read Rhode Island a few more times than Cape Cod, but, you know, New General area. Area, coast, eastern coast. Weetamoo's story is incredible on its own, but it's also an amazing look into the women of the Wampanoag culture and how they could be just as fierce and effective rulers as men and an important part of the history of the United States and indigenous culture. She was a warrior. She was a ruler. She was a badass. And I can't, and like, I've heard of King Philip's war, Metacomets Mm -hmm. Rebellion, uh, but on like other podcasts, I don't remember ever learning about that in school. No, I don't either. And I had no idea that she was such a big part of it. No, not at all. Like you hear about the guys. Yeah. yeah, yeah. And I mean, not to take away from Metacomb because he was also I didn't get it much into him because this is not his story and no. there are plenty of resources on him. Highly recommend you look it up because this is a really fasting part of American history. Yeah. But yeah, that is the story of Weetamu. And Aww. Artemis, thank you so much for including her on your list. I agree. She was really fascinating to read about. And I had I had a lot of fun researching this. I was like, get it, girl. <laughs> I can like 1,000% imagine you She's marrying that. dudes. She's killing dudes. She's giving birth. She's doing this. She's ruling. She's kicking ass. Like... And, and the fact that uh, because I feel like you and I, especially with our understanding of history, it's so male centric. It is. 100%. The men are the rulers. The men are the warriors. And so to see a woman, even if it was, uh, you know, normal in that culture, if there were no men to take over at, in that role is really fascinating oh, yeah. and empowering. And so you don't see it very often in any culture. Yeah. But that is the story of Sachem Witamu. Yay. Yeah. I like that. Emily, <laughs> what are you thankful for? Oh, yeah, beat me to it. Um, shit, I used up my thankfulness in the last episode, which is actually the episode before this, because time means nothing. Is this how you feel every time? Yeah. <laughs> God damn it. You know what? I am, I am thankful to be living through a historic moment with... Kamala Harris being our first female VP elect. Yay. I am thankful to be doing this Women's History podcast with my best friend Aww. and good wine. Uh, not necessarily in that order. No, I'm kidding. Ow. I love you. <laughs> I'm done. I'm and done, I'm guys. also, over. I'm so thankful for our listeners who are engaged enough to like send us recommendations and to draw our eyes to women we may not have otherwise found. Because uh, Kelly, you and I have talked about, we we looked on rejected princesses. We Google people. Right. We stumble across, we do our pe- across people on social media. Like there's no one way that we find the women we cover, but there are definitely women who kind of rise to the top versus other women, right. you know? And I don't think through all of my Googling, I would have ever come across Weetamu 
Or, you know, you covered Maria Tall, Chief. I don't think I would have yeah, ever no, I don't think her. I would have Even either. though she sounds like she was a big fucking deal. Right? I, but I haven't come across her yet. Yeah. And we've been doing this a year and a half. Yeah. So uh, I'm so thankful for our listeners who are engaging with us and who are giving us recommendations and who are learning because that's the whole point of this is to try to ignite your curiosity into yes. the women all around the world who have really paved the way for the rest of us and who have achieved amazing things for better or for worse you know for worse in october but <laughs> you know sometimes still not and we we still not over catherine knight <laughs> want to hear from you always always and i'm gonna go with i'm thankful for my husband because he fixed our contact form on our website yay! yay so i'm so sorry if you couldn't get a hold of us through our contact form but it's fixed now you can always get a hold and of i can us. actually go through and read the ones you tried to submit and it failed. So I will do that and get back to you guys. Awesome. You can also always email us at whiningaboutherstory at gmail.com. Kelly, I know that's your bit, but I feel this is very appropriate. All right. Well, thank you so much for joining us for another episode of Whining About Herstory. Please like us on Facebook at Whining About Herstory, uh, Instagram at WAHPod, Twitter, WAH underscore pod. Emily already mentioned our email address, but we have a website that's also whiningaboutherstory.com. We also have a Teespring and a Patreon, both if you search Whining About Herstory. You can either get some sweet, sweet merch or donate for as little as $1 to get some very special behind the scenes episodes where we actually like video what we're talking about and you can see all our wild hand gestures and we also do history happenings where we cover different moments in history that are more women centric yeah so uh we just re- we have our first two episodes up there so those are ready and waiting for you whenever you subscribe our first one is about the seneca falls convention which was the first women's rights convention in the united states and then kelly covered, covered european, european witch witches, trials which was not necessarily all women but i think i said it was like 82 percent or 80 percent women that were murdered which is sad guys it's so fucked up yeah there's some real it's, weird there shit is some really on. sad statistic that you definitely want to know if you thought salem was bad Strap in yes, and strap on. Certain parts of Europe definitely beat us out on that and one. We'll definitely we'll be doing that once a month. We did miss out on October because some sickness and some death happened. Life, 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 <laughs> life, life and, and death, death happened. Um, but we will be doing those once a month. I have one. I've already started the research on for next Yay. month, so that's definitely happening. We also, like Kelly said, have our video bonus episodes, and we dress up for those, and we get really crazy. Yep. Also, please rate us five stars wherever you listen. It is the easiest way to support the podcast. It's it free. Is. It we takes you five it. seconds. We also really appreciate the written reviews, yeah. uh, particularly on iTunes. We just got one recently, and it made me smile. Like, I really needed it today. I know. So I thank love, you so I love, much. Sometimes if I'm having a really bad day, I'll go back and read our reviews and it just makes me happy. I think what I might do if we have a day where we don't have a say their name, I'll read one of the positive reviews because they're very sweet and we love you guys. We do love you guys and we're so glad you love us. Mm, I'm not crying. You're crying. (laughs) Thank you so much for listening to another episode of Whining About Herstory. I'm Emily. I'm Kelly. And have an empowered day. Bye. Bye.